Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on a bill touted as the first step to major criminal justice reform. We'll make our community safer. President Donald Trump is promoting its upsides and it's endorsed by the ACLU. Groups that are coming together, particularly on this issue, agree on nothing else. The major pushback. Crime and prisons, that's, that's money. Maybe some sincerely believe this is dangerous. We walk you through the positives and the politics behind it all. She's building itty bitty houses for the homeless. Is this a trailer? Is it a storage unit? Like they can't really wrap their brain around it. A Villanova professor's vision, the support and backlash. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the First Step Act, supported by Senator Lindsey Graham and endorsed by the ACLU. The bill tackles some of the unfair sentencing that resulted from the war on drugs. It left millions of black and brown people incarcerated for long periods of time for nonviolent crimes. And now President Donald Trump has announced his strong support. We'll make our community safer. Now, if it passes, the bill could set up conditions where thousands who are currently in federal prisons get their freedom and many more to get placed closer to their homes. Plus, women would get dignity behind the wall, yet some Republicans are dead set against it and some liberals are calling those who support it sellouts. If the bill does so much good, why is it so divisive? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is the Honorable Jordan Harris, a Pennsylvania representative representing the 186th District and the New Democratic Minority Whip. We also have Jules Epstein, professor and director of advocacy programs at Temple University Beasley School of Law. And finally, we have Samira Shabazz, director of policy and advocacy with Ardella's House, a nonprofit that works with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women. Everyone, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Professor, I want to start with you. The First Step Act, what are some of the main upsides that you see, as well as the downsides in this in this new policy? The downside, I'm going to start there. Okay. This is at the federal level, so it has zero impact on each of the 50 states. But there are a lot of people in federal jails, so it's still a good step and a good potential model. The biggest impacts will be going forward – some lower mandatory sentences mm. for people already in jail. Let's start with women. They will put into law what we should never even have to talk about. Don't shackle pregnant women in hospital beds. Yeah. And some backwards, downward adjusting of sentences for people who were sentenced when the crack to cocaine treatment was so radically different. Right. And that will have a particular impact on people of color. Thousands, basically, Jordan, thousands could get out of prison. How do you view it? I take this as a step in the right direction. Um, and, you know, for me, the only downside is it doesn't go far enough. Um, there are a lot of things that I would like to see. Like, I'm against mandatory minimums, <clears throat> just in general as a concept. I think that um, we have judges that we Put them on the bench so that they have the discretion to look at all of the facts and make mm -hmm. decisions based off of those facts. So I would have loved to see this go further and just 
uh, get rid of mandatory sentences in general. Um, but it is a step in the right direction. Politics makes strange bedfellows. And when <laughs> yes. you can see uh, the ACLU and President Trump agreeing uh, on, on certain things, it means uh, that we found a, a spot that I think um, we can start building consensus from and continue to move forward to actually address um, a justice system that has been unjust for far too long. Yeah. And I want to say, Samira, you I mean, you work specifically uh, with incarcerated women, um, formerly incarcerated women. And I know that this issue of women being mistreated, not having access to feminine products and all sorts of things. A lot of folks didn't even know this was happening. Right. Women have been actually in labor, shackled and handcuffed to the bed, which is a dignity issue. It's a, it's a human rights issue. We get that, you know, someone committed a crime, they've been convicted, or not even, some haven't even been convicted. So this bill, I mean, and although some states have already passed it, but it's still happening. And even when you just mentioned feminine products, it's it's even too gross to discuss on the radio some of the things that women have to go through to actually get sanitary products. I mean, imagine having to turn in your used ones to get new ones. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And so this would level the playing field. But so there's a lot of good things with this bill. So we got to but we got to talk about the politics of it. Well, I think a clock is right. What is it? Twice a day. So for uh, this president who has been, in my opinion, wrong on just about everything uh, that he's been doing since he's been in office, um, he's, you know, right on this issue. And, you know, for me, you know, the po- politics has always been about people for me. So um, regardless of who I agree with at any particular time, if the outcome is going to be to benefit people, um, particularly people that I've been fighting for, well, then, you know, that's something we're going to do. Listen, we worked with the uh, Justice Action Network, which is a bipartisan organization that brings together um, people from differing differing uh, political spectrums around criminal justice when we passed the Clean Slate Bill here in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they are another one of the partners in getting – uh, this federal piece of legislation through. So, you know, there are groups that are coming together, particularly on this issue, that agree on nothing else. I mean, I was in D.C. Uh, last week with Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester, who was taking the clean slate bill that we did here in Pennsylvania, and she's introduced a national one. You had Freedom Works, which is a conservative group, and the Center for American Progress, which is an ext- a liberal group, yeah. working together on this issue. So, you know, listen, I, I don't care who wants to bring the reform. Um, people have waited way too long for this. So yeah. uh, whoever wants to bring it, uh, we're, we're willing. And for me, I'm willing to, to work with them to get it done. Professor, there's a huge business case for this type of reform. And also, it seems like, you know, even though there's a lot of divisiveness, this is something that everybody can agree on. Republicans like it because it saves money. Democrats like it because it's humane. I don't think it's that Trump is behind this. That is actually a problem. That's actually making things easier. Mm. What I fear is going on is there are still people, usually white, usually men in the United States Senate who ran on tough on crime. And now all of a sudden, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, but I'm being so nice. And all the people who I used to scare you into voting for me, now I'm going to say – Oh, they're so nice. I'll let them out. So there are some people, maybe some sincerely believe this is dangerous. I'm not convinced of that. But to me, this is much less about Trump is for it than there's still a whole bunch of conservative folks 
yeah. whose own political agendas can't buy into this. Because, and I've heard people raise issues like sexual violence. Will sexual, sexually violent predators get out early? They've raised all these red flags uh, as potential reasons why this bill should not pass. <laughs> right. But that's fear. That's stoking fear into people. If I run on a platform that I'm getting tough on crime, I'm going to lock them up. And we know historically who disproportionately represents the people that they're talking about locking them, locking up brown and black people. So if I'm con- if that's what I'm running on and we know that crime and prisons, that's that's money. We're yeah. talking we're talking money here. So if I'm running on this constantly and this is my platform, I'm locking people up, locking them up, locking them up. Now an administration puts forth a policy that says we've been doing things kind of wrong, you know, with this mass incarceration and this institutional racism that we've constantly, you know, compounded after year after year with more and more yeah. and more. We're getting tougher on crime. And the only thing we're doing is we're having overpopulated prisons. We're having longer sentences and nonviolent yeah, yeah, offenses. Yeah. We're giving people life sentences for conspiracy to sell drugs. Yeah. For nonviolent offenses. Now it's like, so what platform would I run on now? And so what, how do you move this forward? Because now, okay, let's say this thing passes. Let's imagine okay. they get it passed. And it's a federal situation. Could it also influence state legislatures like Pennsylvania, who has some of the worst disparities in the country, but work is still being done? A lot of times, a lot of folks who are against this, if you look in their district, many of them have prisons. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, while and I say this all the time about Pennsylvania, Philadelphia gets the crime, but parts of rural Pennsylvania gets the criminal. And when they get the criminal, they get salaries, pensions and benefits for many of their constituents. So I oftentimes tell people when you see people who are against it, you got to find out how many prisons uh, they have in in their area, because a lot of times that's what we're talking about is, you know, when you're talking about um, this legislation, a part of it. The, the 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 good time credit piece, um, they say it could potentially free four thousand prisoners. Well, at forty thousand dollars a year, that's one hundred and sixty million dollars. So that's what we're also talking about. So I think people have to also think about that. The prison industrial complex. Oh, absolutely, complex. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's it's big money. In addition to that, um, I think when you look at the whole tough on crime thing, I think we have to hold elected officials accountable to not talk about tough on crime, but how do you be? How are you smart on crime? Particularly my conservative friends, tough on crime costs us money as a commonwealth and as a country. But smart on crime is what actually keeps people safe. And then what you'll see here is that if they get this done, particularly from the Republican Party, it'll begin to give a lot of Republicans the cover that is necessary. And that's to, to, to your point, Professor, where the Trump effect is actually helpful because there are many Republicans who are beholden to this whole Trump ideology that by having him out front, it gives them the cover to go back to their districts and be OK with being for it. And. This sort of trickle down from the federal Mm -hmm. government as a model sometimes works. I want to add here the federal government is behind the curve. Texas has done things. Texas, right? Right. We don't think Texas Texas (laughs) and smart on crime necessarily. But states like Texas, Mike Pence, what's he, Indiana? Yeah. They did some of this and he's up there saying – the more it happens and people see that the sky doesn't fall in, right, that things don't crash, 
little by little, it informs. So one of the arguments that has been made, if this passes, this will be it. Like the thing that Jordan talked about, which need to go farther, won't ever happen. Oh, that's a tough question. Half a dozen in one and six in the other. I mean, I don't really know. Like I can't really, yeah. can't really say, but I do know the first step is kind of, the first step is in the right direction. We're, we're going in the right direction in terms of prison reform and criminal justice reform. We're going in the right direction. Um, Representative Harris just said it. We have to hold our politicians accountable. We have we want to look at that. We have to start looking at their report cards. We have to own our political power. Yeah. And now would this help the women that you serve? Absolutely. It will help the women that I serve. A- absolutely. Um, even on a federal level, although we primarily we get a lot of women from the state and the county. Um, we get a handful from federal prison. Um, but we it still would help. Because you once the federal once it's at the federal level, the state usually follows suits yeah. in terms of they'll start suing and the lawsuits and you know start and they'll start conforming. Seems like everybody agrees for the most part that this bill is a good thing. So I mean, people of color overwhelmingly voted against Donald Trump. Yes, absolutely. Would this change some no. minds? No, no. absolutely no. not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Next question. Right. <laughs> that was easy. That was easy. I mean, you know, I'm just saying. Absolutely not. Listen, let's, so, let's, let's be clear about something. One, criminal justice reform is a popular issue now. It polls well just about anywhere in the country. Um, Especially and, in the midst of the opioid crisis. Oh, absolutely. All kinds of people getting locked up for opioid use. Go ahead. No, no, not all kinds of people. Say, say it for a professor. Come on, professor. My people. Say it. <laughs> It polls well. It polls very well. Criminal justice reform polls well. There are a lot of, um, of, of, of elected officials who are going to be okay with, you know, whatever these next steps are because it polls well. In addition to polling well, it's extremely popular right now. I mean, I think uh, just the other day I saw Meek Mill on the Ellen show. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. wow. So, like... <laughs> Criminal justice reform is now becoming mainstream. So it polls well. It's now becoming popular. And then the other part to that is we have a budget crisis on the federal government. Mm-hmm. Our deficit is, is is going up in the state of Pennsylvania. I can tell you that we're going to have a budget shortfall in our next budget cycle. So you're going to have the federal government and state governments looking at how they close budget gaps. And one of the ways you can close budget gaps is by cutting money uh, to your Department of Corrections. So it's popular, it polls well, and it helps with your budget. Those things, in my opinion, are a recipe for more reforms to happen. Now, am I going to sit here and be sad that (laughs) it had to poll well, it had to become popular, and we had to get a budget crunch for it to happen? No. What I am going to do is continue to do the work that we're doing and get as much done as possible. Well, why then? Well, why are people who are supportive of this, people of color, black folk who were uh, openly and initially supportive of this bill being called sellouts for for supporting well, it? Well, I think what happened, you know, without naming names, I think they kind of started hailing Donald Trump as like this, oh, he's coming along and he's just doing all of this great reform. No, it's a lot of grassroots organizations who've been doing a lot of work. And I know Representative Harris may not want, you know, his. he's been doing a lot of work before this was popular, before this polled well. Yeah. Sure. He was he was That's on the ground, true. boots boots on the ground, 
putting it out there, trying to end um, what they call death by incarceration, yeah. these um, natural life sentences in, in the state of Pennsylvania. Before it was popular, before it was a hashtag. And, you know, so people getting called sellouts because it Trump was, isn't jumped in? N- not because Trump has jumped in, but because now we're going to act like this is something he created. Like he just came up with this idea that we need to change prison reform. I think that's where people got upset. It's like, listen, call it what it is, regardless of what um, party he, he he comes from. He, he's doing he, this policy is good policy. Let's keep it moving. Just like you said, would it change the minds of, of black people now that he put this policy together? No, he still has done a lot of stuff and continues to do stuff. However. You, we, we got a good policy right here on the table. Let's explore it. Let's let's back it. Let's get it passed because it, it, it is, is doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people that it's affecting. At the end of the day, though, I mean, we we it went through the House. We got the right. Senate, but there are some major roadblocks. How do we overcome that? Vote early and often. Absolutely. I mean, right now we could get it passed or else it's going to have to wait until the next Congress, well, well, which it no, well, You know what people need to do also besides voting? And I know people don't want to hear this. People need to start donating the campaign. Absolutely. And here's why. You got to, you know, you got to put your money um, where your heart is. And if this is an issue that you support, then you need to donate to candidates who support these issues, but donate to candidates of the of donate to challengers of, of elected officials who don't because what a, what a lot of times happens is um, elected officials are going to look at their challengers. If they have well-funded challengers and those well-funded challengers are well-funded because of this issue, a lot of folks is going to change their, is going to change their mind on it. Sad to say a lot of, a lot of elected folks it's about the next election for them. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, that that's what this all comes down to So if it's a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, I can't remember who it was. It's a female Senator. She voted the wrong way on something recently and they've already raised $4 million for yeah. her unnamed challenger yeah. for and her name, un- and her right. unnamed challenger. Interesting. That's going to start making people think twice about how they vote because right. now people are paying attention and they're activating not just their vote, not just their voice, but they're activating their pocketbook to to influence the process and I get folks in office. I think it was related to Kavanaugh and it was that's Maine. It, and that's so, what it was. And yep. it went against. So, I mean, th- but we have, we have senators. I think Senator Cotton is one of the big ones. Folks have been going after him saying, you know, we need, we need to get this bill passed. I mean, a strong so, arming. Yeah. So I don't, right, so I'm not politically savvy. But I do know one thing, the power of stories. And so in addition, everything that's been said here, the more we bring into the light and out of the shadows, the human tragedies that are being perpetuated every day, um, when we tell the stories and show that we're talking about human beings, when we educate folks about you know, how long it's taken for somebody to come home and actually had he come home or she come home 10 years earlier already would have been productive, would have been able to hug mom or dad before mom or dad passed. There are a million such stories every day. So I'm not mm. trying to be pie in the sky there. That was we're, so nice. We're telling. I love the good professor. I love, yeah. and, and I'm with him on that. We right. need to tell those tell, stories. Tell tell stories. But you, also, but you also need to send your check to the person that's going to beat the person Absolutely. that's holding this stuff up. Because, listen, at the end of the day, a lot of these folks are worried about are they going to return to the Senate yeah. uh, in, in two years. And if they don't, 
We got to stop having short memories because right. what what happened right. is yeah. people right. will do something do, yeah. and then they think you're going to forget when their next election comes up. We no, we're not going to forget. We're going to remind you every single, single day until right. that next election. And we're going to do everything that we can to remind you and get you out of office. And when people, when, ele- when elected officials begin to see that folks are serious about that on certain issues, I guarantee you'll see people's mindsets people's change. Mindsets. Okay, well, because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. I want you to give me your predictions about whether or not this bill will pass in this lame duck Congress. Why or why not? Absolutely impossible to predict because of the all the roadblocks that are possible. Something's going to break or not. So I know that's, I didn't answer you what you wanted, but that's the problem because we're all sitting here while there's this political machinery in Washington where one person, a Mitch McConnell, can shut this thing down. What I do think is there's a lot of pressure to do it now, some because they fear that if they wait till there's a Democratic Congress, the reform's going to be better. I don't think it's going to pass because to to incarcerate and over-incarcerate brown and black people, like I said, it's big money. It's big business. So when you start talking about taking millions and millions of dollars from these rural communities and closing these prisons, what happens? It's like when the coal mines close down. So I, I don't know. I'm just... I'm going to just sit and twiddle my fingers. I mean, I'm hopeful that it'll pass because it'll affect the, the people that I serve. So I'm hopeful. But do I think so? I don't think they're, they're, they're willing to let go of that money. Jordan, last word. I, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> I feel like somebody in the room got to, you know, keep hope alive. You know, so having my Jesse Jackson moment, you know, keep hope alive. But, but no, seriously, I, I, I think if, Folks get on Twitter, Instagram, use their social media, use their voice and their platform to share their support for this, particularly in some of our uh, Republican-controlled states. Um, If folks begin to talk more about their support for it, I think you can get it done. So if we raise the temperature uh, on this issue, I do think it's possible before the new year comes in, before the new Congress comes in. That, that the country can take its first step on criminal justice reform. Well, I want to say thank you to Jordan Harris. Thank you to Jules Epstein. And thank you to Samira Shabazz for coming on Flashpoint <laughs> and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, she's building itty-bitty homes for the homeless. It's very cost-effective and green. A Villanova professor's vision, the growing support, and backlash. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is homelessness and expensive housing. Every year, homeless outreach workers in the city engage roughly 6,000 individuals with nearly 1,000 
spotted living on the streets this time last year. So why so many? Well, in addition to low minimum wage, two of the top reasons cited for homelessness are disparities between cost of housing and wages and the low availability of affordable housing. Well, in comes Stephanie Sena, a professor at Villanova University who is also the executive director of the student-run emergency housing unit of Philadelphia. She made headlines when she convinced a couple of local leaders to invest in an innovative movement to build tiny houses to cure the problem. With me in the studio to discuss her project is Stephanie. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So for people who have not heard about this idea, explain it. We've been operating shelter since 2011 in church basements. And over the course of the years, what I noticed is that people would come to us with pets. And we had to turn away the people with pets because we Mm. weren't allowed to take them into the church. So when I would try to give people uh, resources for where to go, I realized that there were no shelters in the Philadelphia region or really anywhere on in the tri-state area that take people and their pets. And so what's happening in Philadelphia and throughout the region is that people who are homeless with their pets, and we're talking about 15% of the whole homeless population, uh, can't go into shelter because if they go into shelter, they have to give their pet up. And yeah. most often those pets are euthanized. So if the pet is going to a pet shelter, the pet will be killed. The owner won't doesn't want to give up their only companion and best friend. So they're often sleeping and dying out on the streets together. So we said, we've got to change that. So the tiny homes didn't come first. What came first was our need to serve people who are being underserved in our region. This was a gap in the services. So what we did for a year, actually, before the tiny homes concept is we were looking to renovate warehouse, church, school, or a vacant home. In Philadelphia, there are six vacant homes for every one person experiencing homelessness. Yeah, yeah, so large. It's, yeah. it's really not in this country an issue of lack of resources. It's allocation of resources. Mm-hmm. The people who need the resources are not getting them. So what happens is we looked at all these buildings. We were looking for about a year. And what we found is that in most of the cases, we would have to get a zoning variance in order to operate. And we were not able to do that. It's a very long and costly process. It could put us back about a year in terms of getting the zoning variance. Um, So then we were looking at homes. But a huge part of our project is not just about housing. It's about having a community center on site to offer services people that need to get back on their feet. That's vital. It always Mm -hmm. has been vital Mm -hmm. to us. So we needed more than just a house uh, because we're intending to do this for many people, link them to the services that they need on site and be able to move them out. And we weren't able to take over like an entire block of houses because we would get turned down from zoning for that also. But these are options I want to make clear that we investigated. We investigated every option. I got it. But talk about the tiny houses. Yes, yes. Let's jump into that. Okay. So I first learned about this uh, mm-hmm. project in August. I, I heard about a village of tiny homes for people who are homeless and their pets in Eugene, Oregon. Yes, I heard about it in the Midwest. I'd yes. heard about it and I saw the little houses and they're so cute. They're amazing. So what I did is I flew out there because I need to see best practices from other cities and other mm-hmm. even other countries uh, to figure out how can we take the best practices from these other places and bring them to Philadelphia. So I went out to Eugene, Oregon. It was amazing. I fell in love with it, got it, mined them for information, their manuals, everything. Then I found out that there's another village just like this in 
Edinburgh, Scotland. Mm. So, yeah, I went to Edinburgh, checked it out, fell in love. They're actually cropping up in many places throughout the world. And, and because we're radio, people don't know what you're talking about. So explain what this tiny house yes. is. And so we're, we're actually referencing it as a cozy cottage because when it, when it comes to tiny house, a lot of people misunderstand what that is. They think, is this a trailer? Is it a storage unit? Like they can't really wrap their brain around it. What we're talking about is housing that is really tiny, minimalist. And, and how many square feet is that? So we could be anything from 300 to 700 square feet. Got it. Feet. Okay. Yes. Um, so that's kind of our range. Has everything in there. Absolutely. So heating, plumbing, and it's it's uh, all in the ground, so it's not mobile. Um, but it's tiny because I think really we need to be living to scale. And it is, it's very cost effective and green. So what happened is when we said we're going to allow people and their pets, we got the pet friendly people and the pet rescue community coming out of the woodwork to help us. Mm. And when I said we are going to go green with these tiny houses, which are biodegradable, solar paneled, really very cost effective. And uh, it's about us kind of having a smaller footprint, really. Um, the environmentalists started coming out of the woodwork who wanted to be part of the project because it really is brilliant. It's extremely cost effective, saving us so much money that we would be spending if we did the warehouse or if we did the church or the school. Everything from like the cost of um, f- f- heat and utilities, everything is significantly less. But then we're getting so much of our our, our supplies and our land donated to us. Um, Really, this is, I think, the best of Philadelphia is people know, as you said, housing prices in the Philadelphia yes. area are I- I- incredible. Mm-hmm. This is not just in the in Philadelphia. It's throughout the country. We're in a housing bubble. So in 17 months in Philadelphia, housing prices went up 44 percent in 17 months in Philadelphia. So we are at a crisis and it's gentrification. What's happening is that developers are coming, building these high rises, costing one million dollars in that ballpark, and people are coming into the city. The cities are having a revival. But the people who've lived here and worked here can't for afford years it, can't yeah. afford it, including me. Yeah. I want to make that clear is that I, that when people think Villanova professor, they imagine that you know I'm of the elite or I live in Villanova or the main line or something. And I want to make clear that not only is that not true, I personally am an adjunct and I make poverty wages as all adjuncts do. So I am of the 76% of all professors in the country that make poverty wages. And I live in the district where these villages are. So that's important. My base of support is where these neighborhoods are. This yeah. is my home. And so let's talk about it conceptually because, you know, I try to let folks who are listening really get the concept. If you haven't read the article, definitely read it. But we're trying to show you there, there these houses would be, uh, you know, individual units for people to live in. They would be low cost to make. They would be in Philadelphia, in a neighborhood. And it would look like normal houses. They would just be smaller. That's exactly right. So these are beautiful houses. This is not like tent community or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous, gorgeous houses. But uh, what we have is we have actually several plots of land, and mm-hmm. we're going to have different tiered villages. So in the first tier village, we're taking people who are homeless with their pets, many of them veterans, many of them women who are escaping domestic violence. And that's because we know that women who are escaping domestic violence often can't leave out of fear of leaving their pet and their children. So these houses are tiny, but small enough that people can bring their families, their children with them if they're, if they're escaping a situation that's unsafe for them. And so we will – all the people who are staying with us in that first-tier village, we link them to all the services that they need, including mental health care, physical health care, job training, GED, whatever it is they need. We put a discharge plan together for them, and we work with them throughout the year to get them back on their feet. 
Once that, that discharge plan is complete, they graduate into the second-tier village. And so for the second-tier village, that is low-income rent that is subsidized, and they still people in that village still have access to all the services. They're a client for life. And then the third-tier village is home ownership. So um, we have so regular people would be able to buy those homes, but it will be low income. So I'm not thinking about the hipsters and God love them who would be willing to pay like half a million dollars for a tiny home because these tiny homes are trendy. This is really um, meant to be uh, inventory, housing inventory to help people in this city who are low income, who are in poverty, who are homeless, who are affected by, as you said, the rising cost of housing yeah. coupled with the stagnant wages. That's exactly right. You you are 100% right when yeah. you talk about that. At this point, this is like a big dream. But people are buying into it, as you mentioned, the environmentalists, homeless advocates, people who are, are, who are into affordable housing, and you're actually working to, to build one. It is my dream, um, but it's, in re- it's happening in real time. Yeah. So, so uh, it was passed through city council uh, in terms of being in the district that it is. We have land. And so we're going to be starting the build process. Don't blink or you'll miss it. <laughs> so, so we're doing. We're going to start small and scale up. We have one house that we're working on um, because a lot of our investors and our co- corporate donors want to see like the model home. And at the same time, we're working on the other villages. So we have all this land that is ours, um, and we're moving ahead with it. So we're looking at timeline. Um, first, first of the homes will be up uh, by the springtime, and then. The rest of them will be up within the few months following because the build process is is quick. The homes, all these tiny homes are prefabricated. Outside of Philadelphia. That's exactly right. They come to us and then our volunteers are trained very much like Habitat for Humanity. And we put them together and set them up within about a one to two week period of time. So it's very fast. It's cost effective and time effective because we need to save people now. We just found our homeless statistics, our homeless census. Homelessness is on the rise, as is eviction, as are housing prices. Yeah, it's so a we crisis. Need to do yeah. It. yeah, we need to do it now. And the good thing is we have tremendous support behind it. Yeah. And so um, you've been working in this space for as some years, as we mentioned. And so I got to ask you this question, though, because one of the fears that people have when you talk about these villages of homeless people, they're thinking depression, Hooverville style shanty towns. And it's going to get run down and it's going to be, you know, a blighted community. What do you say in response to that? So I can understand that concern. And um, what I do really well is community and community development. So I've been doing shelter since, again, 2011. Yeah. And one of the most important things about the shelter is bringing community managers into the shelter to participate. So I have volunteers. The student-run part mm-hmm. is important. That's the name of the organization, Student-Run Emergency Housing Unit of Philadelphia. And the student-run is that we have chapters at all the major universities. So if you go to our shelter, and despite the fact that we've been in a church basement, this, we're going to do the same thing, but just in these tiny homes. But what we'll have are volunteers from all the local universities. And it's not just students, because we have chapters at Penn, Drexel, Swarthmore, Temple, Villanova, Pecom. But we also have the services from those universities. So Villanova, for example, offers us services that they offer at their Career Services Center for Villanova students, offer us the same services. We have the nursing schools and the medical schools, the dental schools, the schools of podiatry all come and offer the services that they do and and the teaching experience that they do on campus to us. But then what I explain is that the most important part of our project is the shared dinner table. So the community service center won't just be for workshops and and GED training and the rest. 
It's also going to be a community hub where we can all come together and break bread together. And I've been doing that for years. And that element of the project is crucial because so much of this project is about breaking down stereotypes and creating community that we desperately need. So at that shared dinner table, you'll have people of different ages, backgrounds, races, races coming together, playing chess together, having conversations. And you, I've seen beautiful relationships grow and people's ideas and misconceptions being challenged. So, um, so we'll continue to do that at the tiny village. So what that means is at the tiny village, we're having an animal run space where, um, and community gardens. But the community gardens and other services, we will offer the entire community to come participate. So what you'd see at our shelter, you might not necessarily know who is homeless and who is not. That's always been at my shelter is that you de- it's kind of integrated. Yeah. And it's about the fact that in order to solve this problem, we have to come together as a community and wrap our arms around each other. Yeah. So in terms of what what you can Because a lot of people hear this and it sounds mm-hmm. and I got to challenge yeah, you, yeah. though, because it sounds really cool. Sure. But then you're talking about areas where, you know, people who just have income issues. I mean, some people are homeless for a reason other than the reasons I mentioned. That's exactly right. We have opioid addiction that's yes. on the rise. Yes. Um, there are so many reasons, and they're conco- concurrent reasons for homelessness. It's sometimes more than just one, right? But we are very good at working with people who are vulnerable. And what it's amazing what you find if you give people love and dignity and you yeah. get them on the streets. I've seen major transformations. For the people who are um, like have doubt or concern, what I would invite them to do is check out our Facebook page where we have video of all, mm. of our shelter so people can actually see what it looks like. And so the video, what you would find, we partner with Meredith Elementary School. It's a, it's a Philadelphia uh, public school. And, and the kids come in and all the time they participate. But the kids come for like baking workshops and they'll bake together with the people in the shelter. So I have video of that. I have video. We have we partner with Charge Performance and Wellness, which is uh, trainers. They have a gym and they bring their training equipment and they do workouts with our volunteers. So all the volunteers get to use the same services that the people at the shelter do because it's really not about like us and them. It's about together. So what you would see is, you know, everyone together getting their haircuts and getting makeovers, baking pie together, um, you know, playing chess together, having book club, watching movies and documentaries. And again, if you see the video, you don't necessarily know who is homeless or who is not. Yeah. So um, I think watching those videos is really eye opening. And it's I think to experience it and see it maybe will help some people, whoever, if anyone has a concern, yeah. alleviate their concerns when they see it in action. And tell people where the Facebook page is. So it's under Student Run Emergency Housing Unit of Philadelphia, but they can also put on their Facebook search engine SREHUP, which is our acronym, which is S-R-E-H-U-P. Um, so we're easily, or they can find me on Facebook as well, Stephanie Seta, and I'm happy to have people follow because I also post about the process mm-hmm. because it's really an exciting adventure. And um, and for me, it's been challenging, um, but I like a good challenge. I'm a problem solver, and I love to work with the whole community to figure yeah, out how we yeah. can do this. I, I find it to be a very interesting thing. I know I've done uh, code blue stories where I've gone out to railroad tracks with people who are homeless and refuse to uh, go inside because they feel like it's dangerous. Um, I covered a shooting at a homeless shelter a couple of years ago. And so all of this is kind of like happens um, because you're dealing with people sometimes who have mental health challenges and people who people get nervous being inside of a shelter, sleeping on bunk beds with strangers. And so having the privacy of their own individual unit adds a level of dignity 
um, that I think that a lot of people who who choose to live on the streets because they're nervous about that would would buy into and probably be more apt to accept some of the services that you're offering. Absolutely. And the people who have always come to us are considered shelter resistant. Yeah. So they have not wanted to go into shelter because shelters are not safe. I understand why people think that. But Mm -hmm. so every person who's come to us has a horror story of what has happened to them in the shelters. Because we have the same people staying with us. So most shelters are uh, drop-in. People come and go. Yeah. For us, we have the same people and we link them to services that they need. Because of that, and our volunteers come regularly, it builds community and trust. So our, play, our, our shelter by nature is safer than others because if somebody breaks that trust, they, they can't come. And they know that. So they want to stay because it's such a beautiful environment. And people really transform in that environment when, they, when there's trust and safety and security and people know each other. So this is not a situation where, like, really chapters, students, yeah. volunteers come once for credit. That's not what we do. This is not really a charity. We're really talking about social justice here. So yeah. what we require is our students to come regularly once a week and really understand causes of homelessness, obstacles to overcome it, policy change that needs to be made. But at the same time, they're making best friends with Tyrone. Yeah. Right. And so they're putting a person to it and, and someone they care about and they can't ignore these people on the street anymore because that person could be in the next Tyrone. Well, I have to say it's a very innovative approach. I look forward to coming by in the spring and seeing the model home built. So I want to say thank you to Stephanie Cena for uh, coming in and talking about this issue. And you can, again, check her out. They have a whole Facebook page. It's Student Run Emergency Housing Unit of Philadelphia. Thank you so much and good luck with this effort. Thank you. I'm really grateful for being invited here to speak to you. Next up, they give a helping hand to those in a crisis. I'm losing everything that they've worked for their whole life. A local nonprofit's effort to fund those during the battle of their lifetime. We'll be right back. But first, here's this week's Flashpoint on the Tweets with Flashpoint associate producer Brianna Bonds. Hey, Brianna. Hey, everybody. Let's take it to the tweets. We're getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. So, Cherry, we posted about Donald Trump's proposed criminal justice reform bill. That was our panel this week. So we said, do you think President Trump's proposed criminal justice reform bill, hashtag First Step Act, deserves full support? So the options were yes, solves problems, no, not enough, right direction for now, And I don't know. So the top answer was no, not enough. 37%. Wow. But that was a big part of our discussion, though. It was. 26% said right direction for now. Wow. Okay. So um, that's pretty close. But obviously, most people think that uh, it's not enough. What do you think it would take for people to get behind this? We talked about all the benefits that it has. Well, I think that, you know, I think that if it went farther, you may lose some of the Republican support. That would mean Mm -hmm. passage. Um, But I think, uh, you know, as we heard from our panelists, there's a lot of fear that if this passes, then everybody Mm -hmm. will think that criminal justice uh, is now reformed and it's fixed and that's it. And so people are afraid that accepting this means they'll never get the full the full baby. Can you get everything? Isn't everything a compromise? It is. With both of these sides. Republicans and Democrats that have two completely different views of things. 
can anyone ever get the full perfect criminal justice that is in their mind? I mean, folks don't want to give up on it, especially because thousands have lost big chunks of their lives because mm-hmm. of unfair laws. And so, I mean, it, hopefully states, you know, hopefully states will follow suit like we talked about in the show. I mean, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, hopefully uh, this means some good things for people. But uh, should people be saying take it or we'll just leave it? I don't know, man. I don't know. I, you got to take, you take some, you don't want to throw the whole baby yeah. out with the bathwater. You know, you want to kind of keep something going on. I guess that's our 26% that's saying right direction for now. Yeah. 16% did say yes, solves problems. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, that's all for this week's Flashpoint on the Tweets. Make sure that you subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. Look for the hashtag Flashpoint Poll. Thanks. Bye. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. A family with a sick or injured child can face the added burden of having their finances stretched thin on top of the emotional stress of it all. Fred's Footsteps helps families through these challenging times by covering non-medical expenses that could otherwise leave a family in crisis. Here to tell us more about their ongoing effort is Executive Director Christine debona Lobley. Welcome to Flashpoint, Christine. Thanks for having me. Yes. Um, so you all saw a problem that you wanted to find a solution for. What was the problem? Families in our area and across the country and across the world are at risk of losing their homes and losing everything that they've worked for their whole life because of a child's illness. There's so many complicated factors when a child is disabled or critically or chronically ill that go into the decisions that the family has to make. And many times the non-medical costs of one or both parents needing to be home from work, needing to take time off from work can be devastating to families, even families that have insurance and have good insurance. They planned for both parents to be working or perhaps it's a single mother, and being away from work during that time is just devastating for these families. So when we saw that need, we knew that there was something that we could do at Fred's Footsteps to help those families to get through that tough time. And so people can come to you all. Yes. So we work with the hospital social workers. Um, They're incredibly dedicated staff at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Nemours, um, and really any hospital with a pediatric department. And the social workers refer families into our program. Uh, One of the things that's really unique about our program is we don't tell the families what we'll fund. We let them ask for what they need since their needs are complex and based on many different factors. Most families come needing mortgage and rent assistance, but families also need help with with ramps and home modifications, Mm. van modifications, um, kind of these one-time extraordinary expenses. Um, And other families need things like an air conditioner for a child who um, can't regulate their body temperature and the, the summers are are hot around here and seem to be getting hotter. Um, so so that might be a need that a family has. We're really specific about looking at the family as a, as a whole and what they need. Yeah, and I had a chance to look at the website. You guys have helped so many families. Yes, yeah, we've helped over 700 families in the past 13 years and over $5 million invested back into the community. Wow, that's that's a huge deal. And no parent should have to make the decision between going to work or or being with their child and, and missing a mortgage payment um, in order to be at the hospital with their child. Yeah. And so let's back up a little bit. Who's the Fred and Fred's footsteps? So Fred was my dad. Mm-hmm. He passed away um, almost 14 years ago from kidney cancer. And during that time, right around his funeral, we heard from so many people about ways that he quietly helped them or offered words of encouragement. And we just knew that that 
piece of his legacy couldn't couldn't die with him and and wanted to look at ways that we could really help people in an individualized way. We knew that that spirit we could keep alive through Fred's footsteps and and really touching individual families' lives. And for folks who don't know, I mean, her father, Fred DeBona, uh, was he helped build Independence Blue Cross, was the CEO. Yeah, yeah. so it's it's a really special way to, to, to keep him alive for us. Yeah, and so this week you all had uh, an event. Yes. Tell us about it. And then you have lots of events all year. On Giving Tuesday, we had some families come in and we had hosted a little brunch. Um, we're able to, to give them the holiday gifts for their families. And then our partners at Songs for Seed, who use our space at the Fred's Footsteps offices in Ardmore, uh, did a little music class for some of the kids and their siblings. And it was just really great to, to get to know some of the families a little bit better and to give them that awesome holiday gift to kick off the season. Wonderful. And then you have holiday baskets that yes. will be going out and you do a golf class. You guys have a lot of yes. things you do to raise money <laughs> to help these families. We absolutely do. So we have a golf classic in the fall of every year in September. We We've been at Philly Country Club and um, Golf Mills Golf Course now, uh, raising over $400,000 this year. And we also do an incredible event, Party in the Yard, at the Urban Outfitters headquarters in the Naval Yard. And that'll be March 9th of 2019. And it's our sixth year there. Um, and It's a lot of fun, over 600 attendees, just a fun, casual party. Yeah, yeah, very. And and all this money goes to help these families. What do you think your dad would say uh, looking at all the work that you all are doing? I think he would, you know, I think he would be really excited that we're doing this in in his name. I think he would be humbled by it. But I think there would be part of him that as proud as he would be, it would it would have been expected because he always taught my brother and I that for, for people who have a lot, you're expected to give a lot. You shouldn't get a pat on the back for doing that. You should do it because you're so blessed and lucky. So I think most of all, he would just love getting to know these families and the children and and hearing their stories. Wonderful. So for people who want to find out more about Fred's Footsteps, donate, or they want to apply for a grant, where can they go? All information about our program can be found on our website. And then for people who who may need assistance from Fred's Footsteps, um, we recommend that you check out our website to see the qualifications for assistance and then talk to your hospital social worker to learn about how to apply. Wonderful. So check them out, fredsfootsteps.org. Thank you so much, Christine DeBona Lobley. You know, congratulations on all that you do to help families in need. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As rapper Meek Mill once said when discussing mass incarceration, The challenge is really society acting as if it's normal. It's not a normal thing. This is really happening to people's lives. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.